This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode features an interview with Karen Wickery. Karen is the author of Taking the Work Out of Networking, Your Guide to Making and Keeping Great Connections. Previously, she served as the editorial director at Twitter and the senior media liaison for global communications and public affairs at Google. On this episode, Karen shares insights from her book about networking and making connections, and also shares some insights about content marketing and marketing leadership. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is created by the team at Mission.org and sponsored by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click the link in the show notes. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we have in studio, Karen, what's going on? Hey, Ian. It's nice to be here. It's great to have you on the show. We're going to talk all things networking today, a hugely important topic for our marketing listeners. And you wrote a book, Taking the Work Out of Networking, Your Guide to Making and Keeping Great Connections. So we're going to go through some of the nuggets and pearls of wisdom from that, your background as being very early at Google, and uh, much more. But first, how did you get into marketing in the first place? Really, communications is my thing. I have a lot of opinions about marketing, but I've always been a writer and editor. So whatever jobs I've had have kind of gone that way. And when I got into working for Silicon Valley businesses a long time ago, about 35 years ago, a lot of times the function or the project or whatever was under marketing. But my long sort of corporate stints were at Google, as you say, almost 10 years, and at Twitter, almost five years. And both of those were within the corporate communications teams. So what was your job right before Google? Because everybody always you know, wants to know the, <laughs> what's the, what, what happened at Google first. But, but what did you do right before that? So this is a little bit of uh, local history. You know, there was a, a big downturn in Silicon Valley sure. in 2000, 2001, into 2002, really. We've not seen another one like it. So I was at a couple of startups in the year 2000. I'd left a, a creative agency where I'd been the head of content strategy. And I was at one startup that turned out to be the canary in the coal mine for this downturn. They got their first round of $3 million and then they got no more, and they burned through it pretty quickly, and I didn't have the sense to pay attention to that when I joined. So I helped that close down and then joined another creative firm that picked the wrong time to open a San Francisco office. So then I was kind of scraping, like everyone else I knew, for freelance work because no, there were no jobs, really. Nobody, suddenly, nobody was hiring for quite a while. So uh, it's fair to say that it was thanks to my contacts, my connections that I had, that I was friends with the woman who was the first communications staffer at Google. She joined in 1999. And she said, oh, yeah, you should come and check it out sometime. So 
we kept in touch. And finally, I thought, I'm going to overcome my thing about driving to Mountain View. And yeah. I'm going to get in touch with her. And uh, it, it led to a, a kind of a long-term contract job doing marketing and uh, marketing writing uh, on a very small team. That All of Google was five, 600 people at that time. And then from the beginning, I said, I want to join this company. I mean, let me just remind you again that I say I want to join this company. So it took about a year and a half. And then somebody got the headcount to bring me in. Oh, that's great. <laughs> the tumultuous times of the uh, of the contract content person. You're like, I know I'm the first person to be cut when something goes <laughs> wrong, right? Like, it, my- <laughs> uh, I didn't try and think about that so much as I want to make myself so indispensable and so much part of the furniture that they have to want me. And that kind of worked, to be oh, honest. No. <laughs> yeah, no, I, and I say that because I think that that's one of the things that I think we all kind of like, you know, one of the reasons why networking and all of this is so important and why evangelizing marketing is so important and tying it so closely to the business is like, if there are cuts or house cleaning or whatever it is, like you need to make sure that, you know, marketing communications, whatever you're in, content, that, it's core to what's going on. That's right. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And especially when marketing, people have ideas about, but writing, just plain writing and editing, everybody thinks they can do it. Absolutely. And so it's like, well, you know, we have someone here who's pretty good at writing. We don't, do we really need another, you know? So yes, I've, I'm familiar with those arguments and that's why I've tried to sort of make myself busy in all quarters if I can. Well, and everybody, that's the, the thing is, everybody can do it. We learned it in, uh, in grade school. It <laughs> uh, doesn't mean that we can do it well. Correct. So how were you doing it well uh, early days at Google? What were some of the things that you were doing? Well, you know, I would describe myself kind of as a utility writer. I had worked for a bunch of computer magazines and written for a bunch of computer magazines, all of them now dead, I might add. So, you know, I, I always knew how to write pretty clearly and make things clear to other people. So really, if I had a single skill, I'd say it was editing. Mm-hmm. And editing, I think, is a hugely underrated skill to have. Especially now. Uh, especially now. I, I mean, everything around is raw material and you need to shape it into something. And this is where people think, oh, I need a writer. And they're thinking maybe about a copywriter. But it's really a lot of just day-to-day kind of business writing and corporate stuff not particularly the creative stuff, is good editing to shape things up, right, and make them better. So I always had that skill. And um, when I first joined Google, I did things like, uh, hey, we we need some, you know, customer case studies for AdWords in the early days. I think I wrote the first few of them and made kind of a formula for how they should go. And uh, we tried an AdWords newsletter, and I helped people – put together like commentaries for, you know, opinion pieces for online sites and a, a few house ads, you know, just a bunch of different things that and I could turn out copy pretty quickly. And I was not precious about it when people had changes and usually I made things better. So that was that was sort of my avenue in. And then how did that change over the nine years that you were there? So the biggest thing that happened, uh, and I, I had help with this, you may recall Google bought Pyra Labs in 2003, mm-hmm. which made Blogger. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't too clear, honestly, what 
that was about why why they purchased it. I don't I don't think anybody knew at the time, including Ev Williams <laughs> and, and his team. However, Google I already knew was not a kind of standard press release type company. They they put out less than a handful in the in the you know first few years. In the Google spirit is like let's do things in a googly way, right? And so. I got a couple of allies on the comms team, and we made the case, basically, let's have a blog, a Google blog that's on Blogger, where we put our statements and our company and the product announcements and product news and, and stuff instead of press releases, because none of us like those. And so it didn't take a lot of convincing initially. However, we made the case like in April of 2004, which is right when Google announced filing for an IPO. So although the lawyers were amenable to this idea, they were not amenable to things being on the blog during a quiet period. Yeah, of course, yeah. (laughs) So if you go all the way back to the beginning, it was like one post a month that was like a recipe from Charlie's Cafe. You know, it it couldn't have been safer or, you know, less kind of relevant. But over time, then after, after that, I saw my role as being kind of the managing editor. And the PR people had news and announcements, but the blog clearly meant there were so many other things you could do in terms of here's what we're thinking about or here's our position on something. And then, of course, eventually apologies because every company has to do that. So it just became like a statement of record in the most accessible way for everybody, reporters and everybody else. And over time, then we needed more than one blog. And so... Basically, I created the framework for kind of the workflow and and approvals process and also just the overall style. And then I would lightly edit, in in some cases, the posts. I didn't have a big team, but there's maybe one post a day. Lots always in the hopper. So it, it grew to be, you know, sort of a network of blogs. And then a few years later, social on top of that. Well, and I'm curious, like how... How was it seen inside Google as like Marcom sort of thing? Was this seen as like, you know, a press thing as like something that we like needed to do? But like, what was the opinion internally? So honestly, the real key at Google was they'd hired this woman, my my friend, Cindy McCaffrey, early on in 1999 as a comms person. There was no marketing. Initially, it was all this little team was called corporate marketing. <laughs> Google was allergic to marketing for years. Which is so and funny because you're selling to, to marketers now. too. Uh, well, right. But I mean, I think they thought, well, we have sales, you know, we have a sales team and we have support teams and stuff. But kind of the traditional organization of marketing, which now at Google is massive, back then was limited to products only and not very, wasn't about the company, right? It, it wasn't about the company at all. And so communications having a hand in, I think everybody knew, well, like, this is where incoming fire comes first, you know, or this is where we can keep a hold of what, in some coordinated fashion, what messages go out, that kind of thing. It's frankly easier to do when it's focused on just communications as opposed to all of marketing. Well, now, and you have obviously totally different time now, but, you know, back then were were things that... Larry or Sergey or Eric or Marissa or whoever, things that they were thinking like were people hanging on their every word? Obviously not like now, but like were were things that they wrote and thought about or wanted to talk about like newsworthy? 
Yes, because Google was had a huge following. I mean, first of all, whether or not people understood how Google made money and the advertising engine turned on fairly early in its life, but you know, it had such a friendly look and feel, right? And it was easy to use. And so that all, I, I give credit really to Sergey, Larry, Eric, and Marissa, certainly, because she oversaw a bunch of the consumer products. They were anti-jargon, you know, they that was all set even before I was there. So people did hang on their every word. And to some extent, that is why we, over time, started doing things that I still advise clients to do today. For example, people would freak out if somebody saw some weird, you know, instance of a Google thing that looked different. Well, as you know, you know, you're testing things all the time, right? And you're, it could be that you're testing in New Zealand, you know, or you're, you're testing just a a 1% slice of your users or something like that. And the reporters would be like, what is this? What's happening? Are you changing this? You know, constantly. And so we worked out that Marissa should write a post basically saying, hey, we test things all the time. And this is how that process works. And this is why we do it. That thing was an evergreen post for years. Yeah. Because you could always then point people to it. And then people started pointing each other to it, you know, to say, oh, this is probably what it is. See what she said, you know, a couple of years ago. I mean, those kind of explainers are really great for this is a little bit how we're thinking, a little bit under the hood. And, you know, I think they're really helpful. I want to get into some of the Twitter stories in a second. But for our listeners who don't know, you mentioned your clients. So who? what are the types of folks that you work with now? What What are you advising them? What's kind of the scope of when you're working with people to figure out the sort of stuff that you were just talking about? Um, I left Twitter about three and a half years ago, and I've just been consulting on my own since then. And um, it's definitely all communications related in some way, or I have to say now networking uh, related, you know, how do people make better connections and so on. But generally, I've had projects with companies where even today they want to explore getting into like a more editorial strategy around their blogging because in some places it's not you know, the norm, it's complicated by whatever the business is or legal or somebody's objections, you know. So I reassure people about how it could go and all the things they could write about. So that's kind of one line of projects that I do. Similarly, kind of how a company should think about using their social accounts. And it's all very situational, right? Depends on their business and how active they are and whatever they're doing. And then uh, about a year and a half ago, I had this opportunity and got a book contract to write this book, which took me sort of away from the day-to-day consulting for a while so that I could plunge into the world of commercial publishing, which is a kind of a fascinating world. I've been around it for a long time, but I thought I'm going to go through this adventure of writing and having a book published. And uh, that's been very interesting. And now we're on the the paperback side of it, which is to say the second, you know, phase of of such a thing. So I have learned a lot about marketing and it is true. I can confirm publishers by and large, unless you're a superstar, expect the author to do all the marketing. Yep. <laughs> so hey, that's what we're helping out with here today. Yeah, that's and, right. And I will say for the audience that Karen's writer, she has 13 green M&Ms sitting next to her. No, I'm <laughs> just kidding. Um, she doesn't actually have, have that. But uh, yeah, I think it. I think it is. 
it is kind of the, a sign of the times, right? Totally. Um, unless you're uh, unless you're James Patterson, it's just uh, you know you're going to be marketing for yourself. And actually, that it, it brings me back to kind of some of the the Google and Twitter stuff, which yeah. is you seeing this, you know, the rise of the blog happening, then moving into social and kind of being that managing editor kind of idea of like I'm controlling the message. Someone is looking at the messaging, yeah, and that person, you know, happens to be me. And it kind of went from this, like, we're going to push press releases to the media so they can write about the stuff in the magazines and different places where people are viewing their content, to now we're just going to kind of self-publish, essentially, right, with blogs and social and things like that. Mm -hmm. And then now I think the shift, the communications, which is now we're in really murky territory, which is this combination of marketing and communications where we actually can just talk directly to our customers every day. That's right. And our, and our prospects every day. That's and right. We, we don't actually need any intermediaries at all. And I'm just curious, like, as you kind of changed your your thinking over the years at Google, like, how did that change in your mind about how marketing and communications were linked? You know, it's inter- I'm glad you raised that. It's really an interesting question. I'd say it was less at Google than later on. So I left Google in 2011, joined Twitter then. And... During that time, it's very common now for tech companies to have blogs and social accounts. Somewhat more common for companies to be getting into social in particular, depending, again, on what, they, what, what they're about and what they do. So just in the last, what, couple of years, at least that I'm aware of, we now have owned content, mm-hmm. right, which is the stuff that a company puts out itself, earned content, which is PR uh, related, you know, coverage, right? Uh, Where you're still working with reporters and then paid content, which is advertising. So those channels all existed in those methods, but they weren't identified that way for a long time. And it's really owned content that is kind of the, the upstart here that has now come into its own where people say, oh, it's not just, you know, the intern who knows how to work Twitter, Right. It's now like we we need, you know, the social dashboard and we need, you know, sentiment and we need all this stuff to watch what's going on. Uh, That's all fine. I would say the the important bedrock of that still to me is what a company is writing about and saying day in and day out on a blog. The other stuff is on top of it. There can be other kinds of campaigns, but I'm just talking about if you want to find out what this company is about and what they say and you know, what their track record has been, ideally, that's where you look to not just what reporters say about them, but what they say themselves. Yeah. So why does that matter? Why is it important to have like a drumbeat of of content? See, and it's like the term content is even ridiculously It's so loaded. (laughs) Yeah. So and I so I don't want to say like content, but a consistent message yeah. that they share with people, yeah. whether or not they're they're listening or not. It's like it's like yeah. journaling, right? It's like it doesn't matter That's if right. anybody reads your journal. You're journaling for yourself and for your employees, and like to get your thoughts out there. Um, like, why is like is that important still? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I've heard some companies say like we don't even really need a website anymore. You know. But the fact is, especially, obviously, public that companies. That is wrong. <laughs> yeah, that is wrong. But, you know, you want to have, I mean, everybody looks up a URL for every, you know, something. What is it? What is this thing? Is it what kind of company? Who works there? Who do I know there? What do they make? Whether it's that you're looking for a job, whether it's a reporter getting to 
familiar with the new beat or critics or bystanders or fans or whatever it is, somewhere there has to be a website that has a bunch of stuff on it. And you can have channels with, you know, the fun campaign things off to the side and all the rest of it. But for a company, this kind of thing, the the owned content is a repository, like I say, of what you're doing, what you're about. And the beautiful thing about Google that I think is still true, even though it's much, much larger now, is it's not that every message and every post and every picture has to like tie to one of five mission statements or principles or values or something. It's much more, those are the bedrock and ideally everything you do in some subtle way reflects something, but it's not like you're contorting the writing to make the them fit with that. It's more like it was easy with Google for me because I kind of got the kind of googly, nerdy culture, right? And so, you know, for a few years, you may recall, Talk Like a Pirate Day was a big thing, <laughs> you know, or sysadmin day or things like that that were, and it would be easy. And we did do this, you know, like, of course, Google's going to have something kind of fun to say about that because you expect it to. Likewise, when once again, I made the case for Google should be on Twitter in 2009, which was pretty early for companies. Uh, Some news organizations were already, but mostly it was celebrities. And, you know, there were people inside Google that said, you know, we we have enough channels, you know, like we don't need more. Yeah. And for me, it was it was pretty techy at the time. Tech reporters were already all inhabiting uh, Twitter, you know. And I I said it's just something for the tech world. Google should be there. So our first tweet was, "I'm feeling lucky in binary." That's funny. <laughs> and it kind of set the tone. Obviously, a lot has happened since, but it was like people loved it, you know, because it kind of said, oh, Google's here. Now we're, I mean, we were watching those follower counts go like crazy because it was like, oh, Google's here. Yeah. You know. Did, and did you, you knew Ev already yeah. because of the acquisition of Blogger. Right. So do, or did you like ping him and be like, hey, is this a thing? Yeah. Well, I mean, I talked to those guys a lot, first of all, because of Blogger, right? In the beginning of using Blogger at Google, was a little complicated because initially, of course, Blogger was just Blogger. It wasn't built on the Google network. Mm-hmm. So we had to go through this crazy, these pushes to a Google server. And then, you know, it was like a time delay for posts and things like that. Because anyway, it had to it had to eventually get rebuilt according to Google standards. So I knew those guys, you know, pretty closely. And later it was actually Biz Stone who helped me when they had you know, they'd gone to Odeo and then they developed uh, Twitter. I just st- stayed in touch with them and he had reserved a bunch of brand names uh, so that nobody else could get them. And so we sort of made that handoff and then. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Because in the beginning, you know, it wasn't like every brand wanted to be on Twitter, but it would be one can imagine lots of people wanting to spoof yep. all kinds of brand names. So the real Google. Right. Um <laughs> So Biz just saved it for you? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Did you think, like, kind of at that time, you're like, hey, this is a company I'd like to work for someday? Not right then. I mean, gosh, Twitter was still pretty young then. And I think, I, I can't remember exactly the sequence, but I think I think it was Ev 
was CEO then. Um, and I didn't know what it was. You know, I mean, I was kind of interested in, it's a publishing platform. And I'm, I'm interested in publishing platforms. But I I didn't think of it as a company, for me, necessarily. But, you know, over the next couple of years, Twitter grew a lot. And I was, as much as I loved Google, in my role, I wasn't doing much new except, like, training the the inbound, you know, here's how we do things here. So by the time 2011 had rolled around, Dick Costello was already CEO and Ali Bergani was there as COO. So Ev, Biz, and Jack, I think, were all, had uh, had all stepped away oh, that's at crazy, that point. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, I hadn't met Jack until I went in to interview for a, a Twitter job and then and because he was then back on the scene because Dick had brought him back. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's like 10 chapters of Twitter for every right. <laughs> one of Google. Yeah. And then um, and then Anthony Noto comes in. Noted West Point graduate. Yes, yeah. true. That was um, a little later, but yeah. yes. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, what was what was kind of the allure of, of that? And like, what were you doing, you know, on the scene? Did they did they need someone with your background? Well, you know, they did. And they recognized it, I think, because Biz had really been the voice of Twitter. Right. And mm-hmm. they had they had a company blog. And I mean, they had some of these conventions already. They obviously had a, a Twitter account for Twitter. But Biz had gone and they had a little PR team. But PR people were, you know, pitching stories to reporters. That's their that's their job. And so I had talked to one woman who'd been hired to run a marketing group who I knew, and she kind of put together a job description that was like editorial director for a similar job to the Google job, but it would be the opportunity to really build it up and where it had been fairly inactive since since Biz had left and put some new they didn't really have process around it. Uh, and the idea of them having multiple Twitter accounts and multiple countries and languages and so on, uh, they hadn't really gotten to yet. So for me, it was the opportunity to to build something new that was appealing. And by that time, I mean, I, you know, I'd first started using Twitter. I tried Twitter maybe in 2007 or eight, and I thought... You know, it's it's really. I know I know these guys. I I don't see the point really, but then of course, as it got more momentum and more people were using it, including reporters. I'm a big news junkie, and so I began to see. And also, interestingly, politicians in D.C. Mm-hmm. Capitol Hill was pretty much on Twitter pretty early. I mean, yeah. the House and Senate uh, were like all they all had accounts. Everybody always talks about like the big moment when Obama joined Twitter was like, you know, yeah, for sure. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so anyway, it was an interesting and for me, a content platform and an interesting one. It amplified and added a layer on top of the foundational blog, you know, infrastructure. Yeah. Now now they don't need to even click the link on the blog post. <laughs> right. They can just get it right, <laughs> right. in there. Right. Well, and then, and Twitter didn't really have, I mean, you can correct me if I'm, I'm wrong here, but it didn't have the sophisticated business side of things at that point yet. Right, right. And so it was like this, so many people were on there and it's like, this is really valuable, but it's constantly being compared with, I, I always thought that it was, it was funny that 
all these like quote unquote social media companies got compared to each other. Yeah. I'm like it's a completely different utility. Right? Yeah, exactly. Like, like it's it's not even a comparable. Like Facebook and Twitter like really should not be compared no, to each I, other. I totally agree. Um, yeah, and same with LinkedIn. I'm like they're yeah. totally different utilities. Yeah, but because they're ad ad supported models, then like of course they are. Yeah. But in terms of the user functunality, it's like it's you're looking for something totally different. Yeah, um, I, I loved agree. the adage early on when I when I first got on Twitter. The I saw the uh, Facebook is people you know that you learned to dislike, and uh, Twitter's <laughs> people you don't know and you learn to love, you'd, or you'd want to know, right, yeah. or something like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I just thought it was such an interesting kind of like way of looking at things, like this access to people that you never really thought you had, right, or you never really did have. Yeah. And then I think, like like you said, people who are trying to be able to have a channel directly with people the same way that they had a blog kind of thought that, hey, well, this is perfect. I can have right. followers and I'll get it to them. That didn't exactly work out the the, yeah. the exact way <laughs> that everybody thought. And now I think kind of like, you know, you see the rise of like blogs and things like that and obviously podcasting, you know, coming into this. What does this look like kind of going forward? Like, what are what are your thoughts on on how social and all this stuff interplays with building a voice? It's such a good question. I mean, I think it continues to have a strong role. The main thing, at least among people I talk to who are usually business oriented, is do we have to be on all of them? Yeah. I mean, my own viewpoint is probably LinkedIn and I think yes to Twitter Facebook can be fine. I don't know why an enterprise company would be on Facebook, totally. for example, right? Or something like that. And similarly, Instagram, I mean, if you're a creative, you know, you have things to show, it's very visual, go for it. But it's not for, you know, mathematicians necessarily. <laughs> it could be if they like taking photographs. But those two, I think, have a, a different kind of utility, different than each other, too. Well, I think this is like one of those one of those uh, scenarios where we have a canvas and you need the right creator to bring it to life. And I think that that's like the huge misunderstanding of like social media in general is we just try to like shoehorn our stuff into the medium rather than like finding someone really creative on your team that could like bring that channel to life. Yeah. And like yeah. I, we always talk on this show about like, you know, Wendy's Twitter account and stuff right. like that. Like right. some of these ones that really figured it out. Yeah. It's like, hey, it's not a push platform. Like it's an engagement platform. Yeah. It's about talking with other accounts and like, you know, doing things like that and making it fun and tongue in cheek and things like that go a long way. Yeah. But I, I just feel like it takes a creative person to say like, hey, what could you do with our Instagram account and like think outside the box a little bit or, and figure it out. But if you don't have a, like an approach, yeah. um, you know, then don't go there. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, we, I forget who the, the interview was that we had on the show, but they were like the average marketing team is like seven people and the average corporate tweet has five likes. So like not even your whole <laughs> marketing team likes your tweets. Right. Right. And so stuff yeah. like that. And it's yeah. like the reason why it's not remarkable. Yeah. It's not original. It's not interesting. Yeah. It's not something that you would share with a friend. So like, then why are you doing it? Which gets back to the company storytelling aspect, which is, I think is so critical. Mm -hmm. What you're talking about is like, you should have someone directly, it is my opinion, you should have someone directly tied into your core executive team that is in charge of managing the company story. And thinking in like 20-year increments. And it seems like that's what you were doing for a decade at Google, almost a decade, right? I, You know, 
not a 20-year increment, but certainly I was able to think more broadly because I'm kind of editorially minded. I mean, I've been a magazine person in the past and, and I just, I look at bylines. I think about, you know, timing of stories where my PR colleagues were basically, I got a product announcement. I have, you know, an apology about the outage. I got a, you know, like they've, they've got a rhythm that's like down one track where I had really a nice horizontal and I had a cal- an editorial calendar to try and fill. I mean, things always change, but, you know, I think, well, okay, we're going into a Christmas lull. I got to find some like clever, like Googler stories, whether it's a charitable thing or I got to f- put up a few things over the holidays, right? So I would be the one to kind of dig those up and look on internal mailing lists and hear about quirky things just in order to keep that going. And yes, I did have a sense. I I like to think I still have that sense of understanding the googly perspective, I guess, and how broad it is. Obviously, now it's so much broader. You know, one person couldn't do it. The the person on my team now oversees a couple of people, I think, and they they have a pretty light touch on what they do, but they do handle everything and they're the ones to publish. Publishing is not distributed across the company. The writing is and the ideas for posts and stuff, but not not the actual publishing that's controlled. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the chief storyteller role is something that's really important and whether, you know, that's your head of comms or whatever it is. And I think that it's something that just like being the drumbeat of who you are as a company and you're publishing that consistently is really important. And of course, it's going to tie to product and to launches and, yeah. to, and to sales and definitely to customer success because that's a yeah. huge part of that with the rise of customer success being such an important function and telling what your customers are doing. And I'm glad you said like digging for those stories because I think that's one of the things that we kind of just missed the mark on with comms, which is like in order to dig for stories, like you got to have a person that's ready to dig and like give them the trowel, right? Like you can't yeah. just like hope it gets done. No, I remember this is before the the blog even, but when I first started writing these cust- essentially customer success stories for early small business users of Google ads. Yeah. And I mean, I had no idea who, who these people were. So I relied on the sales team or the support team. Like they'd have to vet all the facts and kind of get the, the details together. Occasionally I might talk to, you know, the customer directly, but for the most part, they would have the basics and we would always share the draft back with them to make sure it was, it was right. But I had to totally rely on, on them. So if there's no pipeline for collecting success stories, then you're in trouble, right? And so you have to have that mechanism set up for a bunch of purposes that include publishing stuff and putting it out there. When we had uh, Marissa Meyer in here talking about telling some early Google stories, she was telling us about the IPO and being kind of like one of the most ho-hum affairs because I forget, <laughs> is it, was it, it was either Larry or Sergey that didn't go. It's like stayed with the engineers or something like this. Uh, I Well, I think they both went reluctantly to New York, as I recall. Uh, or maybe but one of them left early or something? Probably. Yeah. They didn't like the pomp and circumstance for sure. Yeah. And actually, the, the guy who was then security head told me that they were famous in a way, but they were always photographed together. So he found that if he, you know, 
had one of his guys walk with each of them a block apart. Like, like nobody knew who they were. That's hilarious. They were just always, oh, those guys, you know, those young guys. You know, I've never even thought of it that way because, like, you don't even hear their last names mentioned very no, often. That's right. It's just Larry and Sergey, like, yeah. as an as a item. That's hilarious. Yeah. No, it was. And that IPO was insane in terms of, you know, reporters in bushes trying to waylay employees to talk about things and... Uh, it was it, at the time, you know, I mean, we've seen other intense, crazy making IPOs since, but at the time it was expected to be a super big one. And it was weird because of this Dutch auction thing. And yeah, so it was, you know, but were you hiding in bushes waiting for to catch the reporters <laughs> hiding in bushes? <laughs> no, but we were all it was a big internal comms push. Like, here's the guidelines. Do not talk to them. Do not engage with them. You know, yeah. tell them to write to press at Google dot com. Yeah. I mean. Just, you know, hands off. And uh, I think most people really didn't want to engage with them because the questions were kind of, you know, an IPO is a marker for sure, but it's not like anything changes. And as I recall that day, we went to Charlie's at whatever o'clock in the afternoon and there was ice cream out for people to have. But it wasn't like, oh, we're popping champagne and we have, you know. There was uh, ice cream out. (laughs) You can have ice cream and then go back to work. Because people, some people remembered like the Netscape IPO mm-hmm. or earlier ones where it was like a little too congratulatory too early. Yeah, yeah. And an obsession on what's the price doing, what's mm-hmm. happening today. And, you know, that's just unnecessary. Well, we see that a bunch right now with like a lot of the IPOs that happen. Yeah. It's just like everybody are constantly monitoring the price of like like the reactionary You, you could know, go mad. Like your knee-jerk reactions like every single day. Like, yeah. I mean, the sky is falling every day on, like, it should tech ever IPO anymore? Like, all this sort of stuff. And you're just like, what are you guys talking about? Yeah. Like, it's a market. <laughs> it, it's like, it'll either work or won't. Exactly. Um, all right, let's talk networking. It has been said that you are one of the most connected people <laughs> in Silicon Valley. Do you confirm or deny? You know, it's a funny line. Thank you for mentioning it. So my counterline to that is, I don't know everybody but I do know who everybody is. I remember names. I, as I said, I keep track of the news. I know who's who. I know who's sort of up and down to some degree. I'm I'm just curious about people. It's not that I want to meet them all or need to, you know, have their cell number or whatever. I just know them all that way. And so to me, that helps with context because I am a networker, but I think it's come out of my interest in making connections between people. Mm-hmm. It's not that I want myself to have, I have to know everybody and have a big following and et cetera. It's not the motivation at all for me. It's much more, oh, you should know so-and-so because you have a lot in common. You're interested in that company. He was just in a similar role. Like, you two should talk. I mean, that that is sort of my avocation but that, you know, is a function of networking, too. And I think that led to that and the fact that working so long in Silicon Valley, I've had a lot of jobs. Everybody around me has had a lot of jobs. There's a lot of fluidity. And the norm here, as far back as I am aware, is it's it's OK to move around and it's OK to stay in touch. Or it's OK to fall out of touch and get back in touch. Mm-hmm. That is the norm here. I think that's just life. And I think that that's one of those things that I think people don't necessarily always realize is like, that's how friendships are. It's how relationships are. And it's like, it's definitely how business is. And 
if you're, you know, a jerk when you're 30, uh, <laughs> you're not going to, they're not going to pick up your phone call when right. you're 40 or right. whatever. No, I, th- I think that's right. But I, I do think there's more acceptance of it here and, and there's more True, value yeah. on your network is your currency kind yeah. of, right? Like if you are a brilliant PM or coder, or for that matter, it'd be hard to imagine a marketer being so siloed. But if you had no connections, but you were brilliant in and of yourself. But that happens like demand gen people or yeah. people like that, like yeah. stage marketing. Yeah. I mean, we see that a lot with like a lot of the, the the marketers that we we talk to and a lot of the CMOs where they have like, because the here is so stage specific to yeah. startup world. So like there's people that get tapped over and over and over again for certain stages of company and then they right. kind of go on. But anyways, yeah. but yeah, no, I, I think, I think you're right. It's like, it's not as, it's not like a Python you know, developer <laughs> or something like that. Right. Right. You know? right. Yeah, but also it, it adds tremendous value to your own, you know, portfolio of skills as it were to, to say, well, you know, I understand how engineers think, or I, I know what's mm-hmm. important to the product managers or the marketers or the technical salespeople, but you would get that because you've been curious about what other parts of the company do and you want to, and you're friendly and you want to know other people. And that's to me, that adds a lot of value to a person. And then again, it's, it's not to accrue all the glory oneself. It's much more like, let me help you, you know, connect to each other. And in a way I wrote the book partly my exercise was, let me see if I can codify all the little tasks mm-hmm. that I do. And that's why I have like example emails for like cold introductions and mm-hmm. things like that. Because I, I do this stuff kind of, it's my second nature. But there is a way for people to, you know, try out these things and kind of fold them into their daily routine too. And that that was the purpose of me trying to put it down. You know, there's another leader that I can think of that would say, yeah, you don't owe me anything, but at some point in time, I'm going to call on a favor <laughs> and uh, uh, it's going to be an offer you can't refuse. Um, Which I wouldn't say, but I might think. Yeah, right? there because you go. I, I might, I mean, if you have some back and forth with other people and you're you're not transactional with them most of the time, then occasionally it's okay to be transactional. Yeah. You just can't always be transactional. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's one of the kind of scary parts of networking, which is like the people who always lead with like, I need this thing from you yeah. rather than going in like, what do you need in life? There's a great story, and I don't know where I heard this. I wish I knew. Where someone had just moved to Silicon Valley, and we have listeners in like 130 countries. So this, I don't mean this to be all Silicon Valley talk, although, you know, there's all of these these networking lessons that we're going to get into go outside of Silicon Valley. But this particular person had no network and came here and I think gotten like a fender bender or something like that or mm. and and got somebody's card and it was a dentist and he went to this networking event and uh, and he didn't know anyone and he was like trying to like talk to people and he was talking to someone who was like, hey, you know, how could I help you? And he's like, honestly, like business is doing great, but gosh, my tooth is killing me. And the guy is like, pulls out <laughs> his card and he's like, I have a dentist for you. And he ended up getting hired. It's like a, it's like a famous person. I wish that I knew awesome. that. Is. If any of our listeners know, just send it to team at marketingtrends.com and we'll, we'll put it on a different show. But uh, yeah, it's like one of those things, yeah. right? It's like yeah. if you actually are open to yeah. listening to what people want, and again, it might be a dentist, it might be, you know, whatever it is, it might be, you know, like 
you know, a charter school for their kid exactly. or, or, you know, yeah. a, a new Boy Scout troop or something. Yeah. Like it could be anything, but I think a lot of people are just really narrow minded in their, in their like guessing what people want instead of kind of like asking. That's right. A lot of times networking is really tied in people's minds to a job hunt. Right. And so then they're feeling needy and vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And also they may have a time limit, you know, the clock is ticking. They got to, so then they're kind of anxious and, and, but then they have to sort of prostrate themselves to somebody and say, please help me. And it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, that's part of what uh, I, I talk about a lot in the book is if you're kind of easily making informal contacts, then you have kind of a brain trust and you can say, hey, don't don't you have a friend over at, you know, so-and-so? Or is there, do you know someone who, you know, has a degree in this field or, you know, whatever it is? who wrote that article that I like, can I get an introduction? That's how you kind of can work it, but you can't just pop it up suddenly for, you know, I have to have a job next week, you know? Yeah. It doesn't work that way. No, and I think it's like, you know, Pareto principle, yeah, 80-20 stuff of like, if you're going to ask someone for something, like help them eight times before you ask them for the two times, you know? And like, that's, you know, it doesn't have to be that exact thing, but if like, and it's so easy with social media and this sort of stuff, like exactly. go to their LinkedIn or their Twitter or whatever it is and like share some stuff that they shared. Yeah. Go do something that adds value to them in some way yeah. before you go in and ask for stuff. Like it's really not that hard. Yeah. Compliment them, compliment them again over, you know, something they wrote or said or whatever. And then it's easier. So I, I do always tell people, I mean, LinkedIn is great for a lot of I mean, it's designed to meet people you don't know, right? So that's great. But then don't use the LinkedIn canned language, right? Use your own language to say, hey, I I would love to be connected to you for this reason, or we share a bunch of people in common and make it a little more specific. So it's not just, please join my network on LinkedIn or whatever the canned thing is, because that doesn't really mean anything anymore. But No, no, totally. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you get, everybody gets inundated with a million things. Right. And I think our our, our marketing trends listeners are savvy. So they don't reach out and ask for 15 <laughs> minutes of people's time because uh, nobody has time for that. But I am curious, you know, in taking the work out of networking, I think the question on on a lot of folks' minds is, this seems like a lot of work and I don't have time to do my job now and right. I'm dual hatted and, you know, or I'm a CMO and I'm really busy and like, how do I meet other CMOs? Right. Uh, you know, stuff like that. Like, how do you have time for this? Well, I mean, to some extent, as I say, I've always been pretty good about keeping in touch with people. And in the book, I, I talk about keeping in light touch, which is to say, you know, in the old days, you might have a long phone call or you might even going back further, you know, write a long letter to somebody. Well, now nobody really has time for that or it's or it's much rarer. So the fact that with people, you know, a little bit or have known in the past or, you know, have some contact with, it's pretty easy. And it, it's kind of my morning warm up, if you will, for 10 or 15 minutes just as I'm like sitting down to the laptop, I sort of look through what was, you know, what's happened overnight, what's happening on Twitter, et cetera. And people will come to mind and I'll just mm-hmm. think, oh, you know, this is someone I was just talking to about something, something in AI and automation, mm-hmm. a popular topic these days. 
So I'm just going to forward that to them and say, hey, thought of you when I saw this. I might do that to five or, you know, so people a day. And it's it's mostly, it's literally, oh, I thought of you, or I saw your team won last night, or I'm sorry about your team losing last night, or mm-hmm. did you see the final of Succession season two? You know, whatever the thing yeah. is, right? And just not an obligation on the other person's part. They might say, yeah, I did. It was awesome. Uh, or they might say, uh, they might send back an emoji or whatever. They might do nothing. But you've had sort of a touch point there for a moment, like, hey, we're both here. Everything, we do so much online now. It's sort of like, yeah, you're, we're all out there kind of bubbling along in the ether, right? Then occasionally then it's like, no, oh, I actually have a question or I actually want to sit down with you or hear more about this or somebody wants to meet you or I want to meet someone you know. Can we have more of an exchange that's maybe a video chat or maybe coffee or virtual coffee or something like that? But that's that's like the one in 10, right, that you do that. So to me, it's just sort of a little bit of a daily habit. That's different than, okay, how do the CMOs meet up? And that takes, you know, more people being interested in having a meetup. And you're talking about, you know, your organization having a hand in that, which is great. But if you're known as someone who's open to meeting people and open to connections, then people know that and say, would would you, I was thinking about having a little group of some of my marketing friends. Would you like to come, you know, Uh, as opposed to, oh God, that person will never, you know, they're too busy to ever respond and I don't know what they're up to, but it's kind of a blank wall. Oh yeah, the curated the curated group of people is the critical piece there. Like, and you just don't want to give anyone work. Like that's the thing. And no, I think exactly. like you know, like you send somebody an article, and you know, just TLDR it. Like, yeah. hey, this article mentioned you. I, I saw this, and I yeah. don't know if you you've seen it already, but I just thought it was pretty cool yeah, that it exactly. mentioned you or mentioned your company or whatever it is, and then they can opt into it or not. That's it. Yeah. You know, another thing that. I heard this advice. Uh, I don't know. who. I think it might have been Tim Ferriss, like a couple of years ago on his podcast, had mentioned that um, he makes a list at the end of every year of like the 20 people that he enjoyed talking with the most uh-huh. and like the 20 people he enjoyed talking with the least or something like that. And he's like, <laughs> I'm not going to talk to those people, but I want to make sure I talk to all those people again next move, year. Move that ahead to the next year. Yeah. yeah. And like, I don't know if you're going to, you know, if you need your own personal, you know, your own personal Salesforce or CRM or something (laughs) like that to track that stuff. But I think it is a really helpful exercise of like, even if it's just like at the end of every month, just saying like, there were two people that I talked to this month that I really, really enjoyed talking to. And I would like to, you know, advance those kind of personal Mm -hmm. relationships or professional relationships Mm -hmm. in some way or another. And like, I don't really know what that is yet. And I don't want to make it like a big deal. But how would you, like, go about reaching back out to that person, in your opinion? I mean, honestly, here again, flattery does a lot of good to say, like, I really, in thinking back over the last quarter or the last year or whatever, really, I, I just so enjoyed talking to you, and I'd love to do it again. You know, could I take you to lunch or breakfast or, you know, whatever the social parameters allow for that yeah. uh, person? And can we just have another get-together? Yeah. You know, two or three of those might lead to then like, let's make it a regular thing or like let's because what we do is aligned in some way professionally or something. Maybe let's make it more regular. But it's interesting you mentioned CRM. I do not have one. (laughs) 
But I just was talking to a guy who does kind of a nice variation of the Tim Ferriss thing. He made a list of people he likes hearing from, every, likes staying in touch with, mm-hmm. right? It, some old college friends, maybe some former colleagues that he just – he thinks fondly of and he wants to kind of keep up with them in some way. So that's his spreadsheet. And he just makes note of the last time he, you know, was in touch with them in some way. Not just the light send of something, but a little more of an exchange. And then he'll say, oh gosh, it's been, you know, three months. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna reach out again, you know, or it's been too long. I want to know what's happening. So there's a lot of ways to do it. And in my book, I talk about a more a shorter term exercise, which is in a company, for example, think about people that you've either enjoyed working with on a project or you always they have interesting things to say in a meeting or they're in a part of the company that you want to know more about. You know, make have for a quarter, say, I'd like to reach out to one of them a week. You may not get one every week, but you would have maybe a coffee date just to get a little better known, you know, more familiar with with them. You could apply a similar kind of thing to people outside that you want to know, whether it's for professional development or, you know, long, longer term job hunting. Um, just say, uh, you know, this quarter I'm going to reach out to, you know, five people I don't know at all that I've been introduced to or I'd like to know, but keep doing it. That's the other thing. You, yeah. Not everyone is is going to be a win, but you keep doing it. it. It's an exercise. Yeah, and I think just adding value in some way. Yeah, that too. Like, you know, if you're going to reach out to someone, like, add value first. Um, it's like, for sure. You know, sales yeah. 101 is like, add value first. Yeah. Don't be the person that's always asking for stuff. No, do not. I mean, you know, I think we've all had that experience of someone, they approach us or they reach out and it's like, I know they're asking for something. I know that it's another favor Whatever it is, because that's what that person does. So don't be that person. Yeah, we had a kid in college who used to come into our our room, and every single time my roommate would just take off his headphones, turn and look at him and go, what do you want? (laughs) He's like, no, I was just stopping by. And he's like, calculus is hard? Or which class is it? Like, no, I just like the physics was like a little tough. And it's like, and never be that guy. Yeah. You know who you are uh, if you're listening. All right, let's get into the lightning round. These questions. Fast and easy, just like marketing automation with Pardot. You can go to pardot.com slash podcast to learn more about B2B marketing on the world's number one CRM, that is Salesforce. Go to pardot.com slash podcast. We love Pardot, you will too. Marketing automation, it's all the rage. Lightning round questions. Karen, are you ready? I hope so. Number one, what book or podcast are you reading or listening to right now? Oh, so that's such a complicated question. I always, I'm the type of person who has five things open at once. So I have been reading Patti Smith's Devotion, little skinny book. And all I'll say about that is I admire her a lot. She's a complicated person, but I like her. I like the concept of her. Uh, Podcast, I mean, I... I dip in and out of so many, and I have to say I'm more consumed by politics than I should be. So <laughs> that's maybe all I need to to say on that. I would say that I follow a lot of accounts on Twitter, more than I'd recommend most people follow. And I just, it's, I don't have lists. I just keep it as one big messy pile. Through Twitter, I find a lot of awesome stuff to read and watch that is not 
the daily parade of, uh, you know, political madness or other things, but serendipitous things about, you know, women's art, about, you know, funny animals like everybody Mm -hmm. else, you know, quirky things, and also interesting kind of longer form stuff, because of course people do post that on Twitter too. So it's all maybe a mark of a messy mind, but I just keep up with a lot of different things like that. And I like the variety. Hidden talent or passion? I would say home decorating. Ooh. <laughs> I did a major, I'm a homeowner for about 20 years and a, a, it was a total gut job in, in this house. And I knew nothing about general contractors or anything, but I picked all the all the stuff and I've been happy with it ever since. And uh, people come to my house and say, wow, it's it's so warm and I could stay here forever. So I think that's a good sign. <laughs> What are you most excited about for marketing going forward? I think, I mean, campaigns, good campaigns are getting so much better, right? For speaking to customers directly, speaking to values. We've seen this whole thing recently about purpose-driven marketing Mm -hmm. and purpose-driven companies and companies that have social values. I'm all for that. And I think, I like to think most people can make a distinction between the, you know, we're running down our checklist of what's, uh, you know, supposed to be, you know, PC versus, no, this is actually, we're taking a stand here, you know, or this is how we are doing things now. And, you know, we've changed our, you know, our data centers are completely green or, you know, what, what, pick whatever the thing is. It's very interesting to watch because I do think people are much more sensitive to that. Favorite thing to cook or eat? Well, I just got back from Italy, so <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna have to say pasta. And I brought back two bags of chef-approved dried pasta, and also learned that only you want fresh pasta for anything that has an egg that has eggs in it. Mm. You do not want like dried ravioli, right? But but the dried shapes, that's fine. But anything else, you only want fresh. There you go, Jonah, our audio engineer who's <laughs> listening. Take notes. We'll add that to our, our cooking Slack channel. Um, what is the number one mistake that people make when it comes to networking? Number one is thinking, I'm all alone over here, and I have a need, and I have a question, and I don't know who's going to help me. There's a faceless mass of people out there, and they all know everything, and they've got it all figured out. And it's them as a mass and me by myself. It's just not reality. There's not a faceless mass. You're not going to network with a faceless mass. You're going to talk to one other person at a time, and you're going to find out that they have the same fears and needs and questions as you, and that's how you kind of build your connection. But people are put off by thinking, you know, oh, it's it's all it's me versus the world. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? I've written about this topic, but I don't get asked about it. And I think it's because I'm kind of anomalous in Silicon Valley or in in the workforce. So I'm 68. And so by most standards, uh, you know, I'm old to be, to have worked in tech for a long time. That's (laughs) unusual. But then also just sort of like, how does it feel or what should I do? I mean, I've talked individually to people who are like in their 50s, for example, and they say like, oh, everyone's so young and I don't know how to keep up. And But maybe I don't get asked about that enough 
or maybe I haven't fully formed my answers to that, but I think about it a lot because it's it's a really interesting area and it's one of the unspoken biases that is never really addressed. Oh, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> we you know, we talk about it all the time when we're when we're writing and creating stories and things like that. I always talk about, you know, Colonel Sanders making uh, you know, KFC when he was like ninety one or whatever. Right. <laughs> but but I think it is one of the things that like knowledge workers now, yeah. we have an advantage that like 2,000 years of humans didn't have, which yeah. is like we can sit there in with a laptop and like do things that exactly that, you know, you don't yeah. even have to leave the house. And I think I totally agree. I mean, I, I think that there's so much that's lost from generations that don't feel like they can contribute. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to be fair, we're at a point where Many people my age did not have deep immersion into into digital technology for a long time. I did. I'm not the only one, but, you know, it wasn't the norm for lots of people. So it's painful for me now when people are like, oh, those boomers, they're so they're so yesterday, you know, like they don't know any. And I'm like, but I do. And nobody questions what I know. But then I think, well, I'm, I'm an oddity. Yeah. I mean, I would say you're not an oddity. (laughs) Uh, I would also say that I think part of the, I hate like the term baby boomers and I hate the term millennials and I hate things like that. I think it's a really silly thing because I think what people generally are talking about are people of an age and they just like label them in a certain way. Very stereotypical. Yeah. And it's very, very silly. It's like, well, you know, millennials like just want to go to bars and like, you know, meet people. It's like, yeah, it's like they're in their late twenties, you know, or like, it's like, oh, you know, Jen, whatever just wants to, you know, sit down and just like stay at home and not do anything. It's like, yeah, they're young parents. That's like what young parents do. So I, I just think that stuff like that is silly. It's like, oh, like baby boomers are so protective of like, their investments that they yeah that's what ha- it's literally you get human old, nature. You, yeah right exactly um, and I think that stuff is silly and I do think that there's so much we just did an interview with um Pitch Johnson and Bill Draper oh. um yeah and so we had them together as me uh, Chad our CEO and, and them too talking about just like you know what it was like build essentially building Silicon Valley back in the 60s like yeah. walking around and you know giving people money right yeah. like yeah. it was you know, the the advent of uh, early days of venture capital and just like sitting down with them, too, and like hearing those stories and them being able to pattern match across generations of people and like seeing what humans did, yeah. you know, like what was it like to build a network when you didn't have those things or how did people like it's so um, it's so silly to like forego all of these things. Because yeah. you think someone is like, you know, inherently a, a group that you feel a strange way about. It's just right. drives me crazy. Right. I know. The, but I guess, I mean, the lesson is really beware stereotypes, any, yeah, any stereotypes, because they're just not going to end up being being uh, correct. Well, this has been awesome, Karen. Thanks so much for hanging out. Everybody should go check out Taking the Work Out of Networking. We're going to link it up in the in the show notes. And we'll link up uh, your website and everything. Uh, go check it out. We just barely scratched the surface of it today. <laughs> That's all we did was just scratch the surface. It, it was fun, though. Really fun, Ian. I'm, I'm so glad I was here. Thank you. Yeah. Any final stuff to, to plug or, or people should check out? Uh, well, so, uh, the the paperback comes out October 29, if, if, if you don't mind me dating something, um, which is a few weeks from now. And it's also an audiobook. And um uh, and I narrated the audiobook, which is an awesome experience. Um, 
And you can read more about me. at I'm on Twitter at KVOX or my own site, KarenWickery.com. Yeah, and uh, marvelous, engaging and consumable, smart, authentic, and grounded in the modern world, refreshing, valuable. <laughs> so many good things to say about, about the book. So everybody uh, check it out and uh, we'll be following along, Karen. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is created by the team at Mission.org and sponsored by Salesforce Pardot. World-class marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com podcast or click on the link in the show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.